0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: There's so many hospitals around me that have no OBGYN care at all. It's literally a band aid dispensing center. It's an ER. That's it. And a 20 bed, basically sniff unit for elderly. And they keep coming in, you know, with obstetrical complaints. And they don't even have ultrasound tech to like scan these patients, to even get a heartbeat or anything. So, anyway, point being, what is the reward? The reward is. If I was in Lexington, I would just be one of many OBGYNs taking care of patients. And I could be replaced by X, Y, and Z, doctor, you know, whoever. It, it doesn't matter, right? Here, I have such a big impact. Because if it's not me, then who? You know, I'm one of four doctors who cover this hospital. That's it.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN Podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. My name is Mark Hoffman, and I'll be your host for today's episode, and we have a guest from relatively close to where I am at the University of Kentucky. I've got Dr. Jessica Branham, who is an OBGYN practicing in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. How are you doing, Dr. Branham?
1: Doing very well. Thank you.
0: Thanks for being here. This is an episode I'm super excited about because I grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in Lexington, which is a pretty medium-sized city. I don't really know how else to describe it. But my experience in Kentucky was growing up in Lexington. And if we ever traveled, it was outside of the state primarily. It wasn't until I came back to Lexington for medical school that I met a lot of people from outside of Lexington. And it wasn't until I came back to the University of Kentucky for my job that I got to spend any time actually working outside of Lexington, specifically in Eastern Kentucky. And my experience there, and I don't want to sound too ridiculous when I say the word transformative, but my time in Eastern Kentucky was just that. It changed how I thought about medicine. It changed how I thought about healthcare access. And it was important to me to have somebody on our show who could talk about that and just go, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. And let's get started to tell the audience about you, where you're from, where you uh, trained and then how you got to end up where you are now in Prestonsburg and also maybe explain to people where Prestonsburg, Kentucky is.
1: I'm currently practicing at the hospital where I was actually born.
0: Oh, no kidding.
1: I always make the joke that I didn't get very far in life. Prestonsburg is the county seat of the county that I practice at. And so naturally the topic is rural America, right, and rural Appalachia. So this is a rural area, whereas Lexington and Fayette County is like the same thing. It, where I am, there's a town and you grow up in the road that's down the road from the town and no one knows where any of this is because it's in the middle of nowhere and for all my friends on the East Coast and the West Coast, I'm in the flyover land of nowhere.
0: We're all technically in the flyover, but...
1: Right, you are too, but... no, for sure. I'm, I'm in that green zone. The, on the Google Earth map, I'm the green. <laughs>
0: right, there's, there's nothing there.
1: But this is home. No matter where I go, this will always be near and dear to my heart. And growing up, I didn't think I would live here. As an adult, growing up, I swore I was going to leave here and never come back. And then I ate those words, I guess.
0: We all do that. I I did the same thing. So I live not too far from where I grew up. So you grew up in what county?
1: Floyd County.
0: Floyd County.
1: Right. And I like how you say what county because, as you may know or not know, in Kentucky in general, we refer to where we're from as the county rather than the town.
0: Yeah. That was something, you know, I'm from Lexington as yeah. a city. And so all of my med school friends from outside of Lexington or Louisville would tell you what county they were from. And you'd say, oh, no, well, what's like what city? Like, no, no, there's not really a city. It's just a, a road
1: in center of the city right like,
0: that my house is off of that is in a county yeah right. that, that was totally different
1: and the point of me saying all this is because i did train in philadelphia and living in the mid atlantic area where it was very large uh, <laughs> urban area no one had any idea where any of these places were or where they were on the map or were kentucky and tennessee and My program director, God love his heart, he would make fun of my accent on a daily basis and be like, I'm Jessica Branham and I'm from Kentucky, South Carolina. And I'm like, Dr. Jack, it's not the same.
0: No, I mean, I had that experience just going up to the University of Michigan for college and people thought, I mean, it's a five hour drive. It's like I do. I've done it, you know, I've done it there back in the day. Yeah. Not a lot of folks have a lot of experience in this part of the country. And so how was that transition? So you did med school at the University of Pikeville. right? And then went to Philadelphia. How was that transition for you? Is that the biggest city you'd ever lived in?
1: Yes. So I had lived in Lexington for undergrad. So I went to University of Kentucky. Okay, you went to UK. Yeah, for my undergraduate. And then I came back home for medical school. And I really wanted to come back home for medical school. My family's all here. And I knew that would be a really challenging and stressful time of my life as it was. I was kind of feeling lonely in Lexington. It was only two hours away, but I was like, well, I'd like to be home and, you know, my parents would bring me food and do my laundry when I was in Mexico. <laughs> that was so nice. So I Pipeville was home and I was missing home, which was strange because, again, I think of Lexington as home now too after living in another state. But anyway, Philadelphia was a whole other culture, obviously. People are hard to get to know, but once you get to know them, you'll make a friend for life. So they're very honest. They're no no BS kind of personality, for better or worse. I love Philadelphia. I miss it, actually. My husband thinks I'm crazy, for saying.
0: Is he from the same part of?
1: He's from Lecture County, so he is from Whitesburg, which is why we went to Whitesburg the first year and a half I was in practice. That didn't work out too well.
0: And how far is Whitesburg from Prestonsburg?
1: So, you know, sixty, ish miles south, southeast from where I am now. Philadelphia was a wonderful experience for me, just getting to take care of so much diversity and, of course, a large population of, you know, volume people and different uh, types of people. And it was great experience just as a physician trying to learn. I think it's always great to have volume and diversity during training, right?
0: For sure. I mean, and also training a place that's different from where you went to med school and working it's different from where you trained. I mean, I feel like I've been able to take pieces of every place I've gone to try to make, you know, wherever I end up better, right?
1: Yeah. The one thing that I'll never forget, I was one day standing there on labor and delivery and I don't even remember like specifically what the situation was, but we had this kind of rare. I want to say it was a, maybe a fetal cardiac issue or I don't know if it was Epstein's anomaly or it was something, you know. then the patient, we shipped her to CHOP, Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, and shipped her like 30 minutes. <laughs> it was like, let's bet you in the ambulance and take you down the road. 30 minutes away to CHOP, which is this world renowned hospital that can do, you know, all of these amazing things and fetal surgery for your baby. And I just remember standing there thinking, and I actually looked at one of the nurses and I said, "You people have no idea how fortunate you are." And she was like, "What?"
0: And that was my experience and so when I you know I did med school here in Lexington mm-hmm. at the University of Kentucky, and then did residency at the University of Chicago, and that's in the south side of Chicago, yeah, an area with significant urban poverty. I'd spent time in New York City after college working in nonprofits and saw a lot of urban poverty there, but mm-hmm. what I hadn't ever seen before was rural poverty and issues in healthcare and access in rural areas. And so when I came back to the University of Kentucky, I'm a minimally invasive GYN surgery by trade and building a practice that's brand new, you have a little more free time and are looking for ways to sort of justify your salary and moonline a little bit and University of Kentucky ran a practice in Hazard, Kentucky, in Perry County, Kentucky the town with one of the lowest life expectancies for women in the country. Mm -hmm. And so I would stay in the Hampton Inn & Suites for the weekend and right up the road from the Hazard ARH, which is Mm -hmm. Appalachian Regional Hospital, which is a network that you're currently working in, correct, ARH? Correct. The time that I spent there both in clinic and in labor delivery when I was still doing obstetrics and doing surgery down there it was eye-opening, to say the least. What we were able to do for folks there, we were limited, right? I mean, in some ways, it felt like we were working on the space station because, you know, I need this thing. And they're like, they look at you like, what? Well, there's no way I can get that thing for you here where we are. We don't have it. Yeah, just forget it.
1: Well, that's why I made that realization because I... So I did medical school Sure, Majority of my clinical rotations, with a few exceptions. You know, I went, I did GAN-ONC at ETSU, and I did MFN. Like, I, you know, I did some out rotations. I went to Columbus and did some OB for, like, electives. But for my core, I did that here in all the hospitals in eastern Kentucky. At the time, I thought, you know, am I getting enough? Would I have been better served if I would have went to University of Kentucky or University of Louisville for my, medical school. You know, you kind of have like, I'm in a DO school. I'm like, am I good enough? You know, I'm do these rotations. Am I good enough? Residency, I realized actually I got a far better experience because it was just me and the attending one-on-one. I got to be the one to suture all of the little incisions and the laparoscopic surgeries and my attending let me put in all the pick lines. I mean, he'd just stand there and be like, go for it. Because he knew I was like gun ho about anything I could get my hands on. And it was amazing.
0: Help is not easy to find down there. I mean, I, right. when I would do surgery, there'd be, you know, a med student there. Yeah. And like that would be the assistance that I had for a case. Mm-hmm. And I think, so UK is an MD school. And what I didn't understand about Pikeville Med School, and, some, and I don't know if that's the case at all, osteopathic schools, but the rotations are not always at the medical school. Basically, all the rotations are at UK Hospital, at least they were when I was there. Yeah. I was down in Hazard and this kid shows up and he's like, hey, how are you? I'm so-and-so. Hey. (laughs) I was wondering if I could watch this case with you. And I was like, okay, oh sure. Who who are you? Who are you? He's like, oh, I'm the OBGYN third-year medical student rotating down here. I was like, down here? Like who? Yeah. There's no... Curriculum down here. There's no, It's not. It, it, I was a third year clerkship director at UK, so it was all so structured. And, mm-hmm. But this student had access to the OBG ones that were there. He got to basically be part of the care team in a way that I certainly was not at the University of Kentucky. It was very different, and it was it was unusual for me. Not better or worse. It was just like it's different. It's just totally different, like you said. Then you go somewhere else. You're like oh wait, you probably had less autonomy in Philadelphia at times than you did back home.
1: Well, like I did a lot of our rotations. Like we did guy on at Temple, and there was you know fellows, you know, and they went to Cooper for Eurogyne and there was a Eurogyne fellow, and so the urology fellow was like go around, hold this, and like he was the one getting all the procedures, and I'm standing behind him like
0: holding a retractor or something.
1: Right. And I'm like, what? Like, I usually do this procedure. Like, oh, yeah, he's the fellow. And the same thing with medical school. So we had, we call it PCOM, but the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, their students would come over and to rotate with us. We would have University of Pennsylvania medical students that would come over and rotate at my hospital. So I would have a Penn student and I would have a PCOM student. And I, I'll never forget one time I asked a question. You know, it was like my chief year. I was asking a question and I was pimping the students. And there was a girl, a female, and a male, and the female was from UPenn, and the male was for PECOM. And I asked the question, and the female student from Penn got the question correctly, and she, very smart, very smart, did great. And I was like, yeah, that's it. And I looked at him, I was like, what about you? And he was like, Brr. and later after she walked off, he was like, you know, she's from Penn. And I went, I reckon the books read the same direction at Penn as they read up there at City Avenue. Like, what are you doing, buddy? Like, <laughs>
0: You got to step it up. You got you to gotta make us look
1: bad. <laughs> but I was like, no, like, that's not that an excuse. What's that got to do with it? You have the ability to access the same information, read the same textbook.
0: But you, but you strike me as a very self-motivated person. You know, I have plenty of colleagues who went to osteopathic medical schools, and this show is new. We've already had some on the show. And yeah. these people that just blow me away with all the things they have done in their lives. And the difference, seems to me, that with the osteopathic, Schools,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the curriculums are not the same, and so you have to be a little self, a little more self-motivated at times. You have a lot of folks coming to DO schools that have like I've had to do it all myself. I'm not impressed by any of this, and they're really it's incredible. It's a different model, but one that I think we have plenty of colleagues who've done amazing things from both tracks. But I want, I want to spend time really talking about your practice because what I want our listeners to understand is that in America in 2022 there are places where Patients don't have access to health care in the way that we do, in the way we think about in cities. Patients don't have ready access to specialists. They don't have access sometimes to hospitals that have a- obstetrics units. When I would go down there and tell folks, hey, you need this procedure, it can't be done here, just come up to Lexington. And they would look at me like I was crazy. And I said, no, no, it's like two hours away. I drove down here this morning, I'm driving back this afternoon. But a patient's husband had taken off work and they only have the one truck and They both took off work to come to her appointment because she can't see very well to drive. And so for them to get to Lexington was another day off work for both of them. And 50 bucks worth of gas each way in their old truck. That's just for the console plus the pre-op plus the surgery. I mean, to get these folks the care they needed was like asking them to move a mountain. And it it was. I mean, it was a huge lift. And just come to Lexington to them was like, you know, many of us think about going to Manhattan. To them, it was just easier just to stay home and deal with it. And it really shaped how I thought about how we care for patients, especially in these environments. Because like you said, we read books, we go to school, we take tests, same answers everywhere. But then actually getting these patients to the right place, to the right doctor, and to get them the care they need, the answers that we're looking for are not always on the page. And you got to figure it out.
1: So your experience in hazard is very, I think, representative to my day to day. My day-to-day life involves trying to figure out where are the boundaries of my limitations and at what point am I not comfortable and what point I am comfortable with doing things because this patient doesn't have the resources or the socioeconomic resources to get somewhere where they may be better served. You know, you're a minimal invasive surgeon who, a specialist. And there are times when I have a patient that will have a huge fibroid or just the other day saw one that was a little bit fluffier than right. <laughs> in the in the panels that I like to operate on with my straight sticks and my not tertiary care center. And I say to her, you know, I could open you up and I could put an incision that's about 10 centimeters across your belly and put you at risk for all these things, wound infection because she's diabetic or what have you.
0: These these are the patients that stand to benefit the most from laparoscopic surgery, right? I mean, it's a huge deal right. for them.
1: And so sometimes these patients have the resources, and they say, "Oh yeah, Lexington, I go shopping there all the time." I go, so I have you know, I have some patients that do have the the resources and the ability to drive up to Lexington and get that laparoscopic or robotic hysterectomy that I may not feel comfortable doing here. But then I have some patients who use their last five dollars to go a few miles down the road to make it to my clinic that day just to help me stop her from bleeding. And she just wants it out, and she doesn't even know where Lexington, she's not sure she can make it that far, or she doesn't have a car to get there, or the money to get there, or she's just terrified at driving in the big city. You know, what people are intimidated. You know, we're on these small roads. We're in a rural area. People are comfortable here. They grew up here, and even though the roads have changed over time, they've been here when those changes took place. Lexington seems like a world away from them it's just completely one-way
0: streets and parking garages and they're like yeah forget it I'm not I'm not dealing with that yeah because the UK is near downtown right getting to yeah good good Samaritan where I work or to Chandler Hospital is confusing for those of us <laughs> that live here let alone right. it's a massive health center so to think about coming from a small town into that it's important to think about it from the patient's perspective right so patient-centered care we think about that it means a whole world of difference when we're talking about patients who come from such a different environment than the ones that we're used to.
1: You know, I was thinking about this podcast and had to ask you, what what exactly are you wanting me to talk about here? Because, you know, I could see this going in many different directions and I, of course, start preparing. Okay, I'm going to pull a committee opinion and I'm going to like start, you know, like you want to know like quotes of like, because I got those right here, you know, when you talk about rural America and These are your sickest patients. Like, that's the crazy part is we have the least resources, but we have the sickest patients. We are higher risk for even things like motor vehicle accidents, cerebrovascular events, suicide. Like, it's in the committee opinion. Like, you can just pull that up. Obesity, obviously, cigarette smoking, low birth weight. We have a higher maternal mortality rate than any other. You know, you mentioned that earlier. You know, these patients are sick. Unintentional injury, self-harm, suicide. All of those things. And
0: they have to drive farther for care. And so the risk of car accidents, like you said, goes up.
1: Yeah. But also, like, I was looking at just cervical and breast cancer. We had the highest cervical and breast cancer rates than the nation. Like, I was looking at 13, I think, counties. No, 13 states. So Appalachia, 54 out of the 120 counties are considered Appalachian. And of course, out of those, Kentucky and West Virginia had the highest invasive cancer rates in all of Appalachia. So we're talking about rule for rule. We're talking about the worst of the worst.
0: To have that combination of the sickest patients in some of the least well-resourced hospitals, it puts a lot on the providers. I work at our transfer center, so I get phone calls from anywhere from orthopedic surgery to trauma. I'll do this a few shifts a month, but I hear every phone call that comes through when I'm there for every service from all over the state. It changed my perspective and it changed how I take these calls, understanding the challenges these docs out in the community. I mean, they're just, they're trying to take care of these incredibly sick patients with none of the resources that we have at a big institution, not multiple ICUs and you know, traumatologists and all these things. They're out there on their own. Let's start talking about your day-to-day. How many people in your practice, how many days in clinic, OR, L&D coverage? Like, what what does your week look like? Because my guess is it's very different than my week.
1: So this is kind of a strange time in my practice. Typically, I would say I see anywhere between 25 to 30 patients at a clinic day. So I don't think that's like a high crazy volume, but I don't know. That's a normal amount. But my acuity is probably quite high sometimes. So I have one surgery day a week and sometimes I'm full and busy. And those other days I just have a few cases and that's it and I'm done. I take Mondays off now, which might sound strange. But if I don't, because I am on call at least once, twice a week, 8 to 10 call days a month, because I'm one of four OBGYNs that covers labor and delivery, well, all OBGYN, you know, at the hospital. And that just changed recently, because I was one in three up until very recently, and then we had another one join, yes, our call pool, so which is nice. So one in four. So instead of having 10 call dates a month, I've kind of dropped down eight, yay, one week in a month, usually. So when I'm on call, that's probably what's so different for me than you. I don't know if you do call or not, but when I'm on call, I take it from home. So I'm not in house, but some nights get a few calls a night and it's not bad. And then there's other nights I'm literally there all night or don't get any sleep. Sometimes I'm going in at two or three o'clock in the morning, calling you guys at UK and saying, hey, I have this 30 weeker with severe preeclampsia and, you know, trying to get them out. The scariest part about my job is when I'm on call, I find it harder and harder to relax because I never know when that phone rings, if it's going to be something simple or if it's going to be like a disaster. (laughs) And when I'm on call, I'm it. I am it. I don't have, like, I have great coworkers, partners, but our time, you know, we don't have a lot of coverage. So when we're on, you're on. And when you're not, you're not obligated to go in or help. And sometimes you're not even in town because it's your weekend off. So sometimes, you know, I mean, you've just kind of got to manage it yourself.
0: You know, I was pretty fresh out when I was going down there and I hadn't done, I don't do OB now, so I'm not doing an in-house call. But when I was a fellow, we did a night a month. Mm-hmm. My OB boards list was great. I had like 26 patients. We didn't do a lot of OB and MIGS fellowship and coming out. I did a few calls a month here and there. But going down and working in ARH, you're it. You're it. Yeah, it may be, like, one of the, the nurse may have been a traveler, been there about a week and a half. Yeah. Anesthesiologist, the other thing that I think a lot of people take for granted. I don't know how you guys have it. Do you guys have an in house anesthesia provider?
1: No, 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 no. No. So this is us also, we don't do VBACs, right? Like we don't do VBACs. Not because we don't believe in VBACs. I love a good VBAC. When I first came to Highlands, I was doing VBACs. I did like two in one week and then I got called to the meeting and they were like, what are you doing? Why are you VBACing these people? I'm like, well, she came at eight centimeters. It'd be a sin to cut her. And like, yeah, well, you know, anesthesia is kind of getting ticked off at you because they don't want to be there waiting for your patient to deliver. Now, these were more tips, okay, who had a proven pelvis before, so I will say it wasn't crazy. I wasn't like feedback in a prom who came in at two centimeters. They came in very active, and it went really quick, and it went well. But I get it. My partners were like, you're going to start this trend of something that we really can't offer. And I'm like, you're right. Like I just came from this place of where we offered feedbacks and now I'm here in this place where we can't really offer those because... We don't have in-house anesthesia. And so we're asking our anesthesia peers to come in and be there all night just to be there waiting.
0: And you, and you have to think steps and steps and steps ahead. Yeah. And thinking about, okay, this patient is progressing slowly, but the yep. tracing doesn't look great. You know, I could sit and watch it. Mm-hmm. And if something goes bad at UK or University of Chicago, you just say, all right, let's go to the OR. And we can be, maybe it can be at in a couple of minutes Calling anesthesia from home. I mean, you're getting somebody out of bed, getting in the car, getting dressed, yep. to coming to the hospital. And I don't care if they are down the road. It's still 20 minutes. And yeah. that's if you get them on the phone the first time. And there's a couple of times where we're like calling the anesthesia doc and I was like, yeah, they're not answering the phone. I'm like, what do you mean they're not answering the phone? I'm like, we got to get this kid out. Yeah. yeah. So there were some moments where I was just like, I am <laughs> on the moon right now. I am on the moon and there's nobody who can help me. And it was. It puts some hair on my chest, that's for sure.
1: It's terrifying.
0: It was terrifying.
1: So I've gotten used to it, but there's times when I've talked to Dr. O'Brien, who's your MFM, and I feel like I have that guy on speed dial. You know, I'll say to him, I'm an idiot for being here. He's like, no, no, you're doing good work. You're doing good work. No, I'm an idiot. You know, uh, if we have a hemorrhage, I have to say, you know, get this, get that, do this, do that. And, you know, we don't have in-house IR, so, like, I am either throwing a bocker in, be lynching, giving all the things, or I've got it a hysterectomy by myself, or call in a general surgeon to come help me. I don't have Gynon to come in and there's magical surgical ways to help me with that. What I find so frustrating in this, which may be silly, but sometimes you'll you'll call to transfer a patient. And you always wonder what the person on the other end is perceiving you as like some chicken or you're a coward or you don't know what you're doing. You're at this podunk hospital and If they've had no experience in working in these settings, they don't understand how proactive we have to be. And like you said, we can't just think two or three steps ahead. We have to think like 10, 20 steps ahead of all the things that could happen. And can we handle that? By the way, that thing may not even happen, right? Like most of the time it doesn't, right? Statistically, it's probably not going to happen. But if it does and she's here and it's just me, what am I going to do?
0: That's it. You have just said it. That is it right there. And that, you know, this is why I wanted you to be on the show. That's why I wanted to talk to you because I didn't understand what the work of a rural doctor was. Certainly a rural obstetrician-gynecologist. My respect for you, Jessica, is through the roof. And I hope you never feel that when you call anybody. It takes so much brains and energy and heart and all the things to do what you do, where you do it, your patients are so lucky that you're there. I cannot emphasize enough the respect that I have for you to do what you do i I don't know that i you know I have the guts to do it, and i've and I've done it right i mean it, it was it was a lot, but I also gained such an appreciation for what you do and how you do it. I hate that you say that because the other thing we can talk about is that a lot of these rural hospitals are losing obstetrical services, right? It, mm-hmm. You know, if you don't do a certain number of deliveries, it doesn't make money for a hospital. And so doctors like you are becoming less and less common. You know, we're, we're putting out more and more medical students, but the population's growing. Most of the population in this country's growth is urban, is in cities. Yeah. And most people who train will stay in those cities. And so the percent of docs going into rural communities to practice is lower. And... That, to me, is a health crisis of its own. And so not only are the resources scarce, not only are the preventative resources scarce, leading to such a high rate of serious medical issues like you talked about before, lack of access to you know, routine care and mm-hmm. pap smears, increased cervical cancer rates, all those things, and obesity and food deserts, everything is harder where you are. And so to not have docs out there, to make it so now instead of them having to drive 30 minutes to go see you, now they're going to have to drive to Hazard. And now they're going to have to drive to Whitesburg, or Now they're going to have to drive to Lexington. Yeah. And that, to me, is the scariest thing of all. I just want you to know what respect I have for you and how grateful I am for the work you're doing and why I wanted to bring you on because I don't well, thank you. think everyone understands the challenges, but we have to also be super, super, super patient. You know, again, when we take calls from docs, like when you call, hopefully I'm, hopefully I'm nice on the phone, but yes. it is so hard. It is so hard out there. And
1: Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate that. And it's funny because in, in my, you know, looking at stuff before we had this conversation, you totally hit the nail on the head there. 2008, 6.4% of OBGYNs practiced in a rule setting, 6.4. In 2010, 49% of the 3,143 U.S. counties lacked an OBGYN. So 49% of U.S. counties lacked an OBGYN. Although, more women are entering both family practice and, and OB-GYN as a specialty, the majority of them are women entering these fields are staying in urban areas. They're not going to rural areas. They have a lower percentage of entering in, in, you know, after training. And that, you know, of course, a lot of rural areas have 100% percent OBGYN care provided by family practitioners, not OBGYN at all. You know, like I said, the numbers are backing it up. It's not, you know, we're not just making this up. It's not in our heads. We are, It's it's going the wrong direction.
0: Well, the other stat I read about that was that family medicine, there was a family medicine doc who rotated with us in the call pool in, in Hazard. But in 1982, I read this, 44% of family medicine docs delivered babies. And that's down to, it was 13, six years ago. The vast majority of family medicine docs are coming out not doing.
1: No, they're not. They're not trained.
0: Obstetrics. And so that was a huge part of the workforce in caring for and managing obstetrics patients in smaller communities. And now not only are fewer OBGYNs moving into the communities, we don't have the support of family medicine. And so it truly is becoming a care desert in that sense. I mean, that's happening in surgery. It's happening across the board and specialties. But for maternal care, it's, you, it's, it's hard to have a regional centers and people come in and labor. They show up and these babies are coming whether you're yeah. prepared for them or not.
1: You can't stabilize them. With. That's the other scary thing. Just this morning, I don't know if you saw on the news, there was a school bus accident in McGoffin County, Yeah, which is one of the bordering counties. And McGoffin County, by the way, has zero OB-GYNs. I am the ob for basically <laughs> McGoffin County. OK, there's no hospital in McGoffin County. We have a couple of federally qualified health care clinics. But anyway, the school bus wrecked and they were having to transport some of the children that were involved in that wreck. And I heard that three of them had to be airlifted out. I was having a conversation about this, and the other person who wasn't a medical person said, yeah, they had to fly them out, and oh my gosh, it's so scary. And I looked outside, and I was like, well, thank God the weather was good today. Oh, God! Because when I hear, get them out, yeah, it's a knee-jerk reaction for me. First thing that I do is I look at the sky. What's the weather? What's the weather? I drive to work. This is so crazy. Who does this? I drive to work, and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of fog. I hope nothing happens. Like, that felt crazy. But I, I noticed this.
0: One of my shifts down there, yeah, taking care of a very sick patient, and I was trying to get them up to Lexington. Yeah, can. It was a nice storm, so I was stuck in the ICU with that patient for like twelve hours because yeah. the ambulances just weren't running. The ambulances just weren't running, and I'm going, wait, wait, what do you mean she has to stay here with me? I'm not, a, I'm not an intensivist. I'm not an ICU doc. That was one of those moments. I mean, again, I've talked to you about a few of them, you know, offline too. But that's one of those moments where you just, yeah. I'm the best they've got, whether I'm, you know, whatever happens, better that I'm here than I guess nobody. But it's humbling. Yeah. I mean, I think, oh, like look up at the sky.
1: Yeah, my way to work. I, I at like, like, what's the weather doing today?
0: What a response, though.
1: When I get a phone call, that's always my first thought. When when nurses call me on a patient that is a potential transport, I always look at the sky and think, okay, first thing, what's the weather? Are we going to fly? Are we going to get her an ambulance? And then sometimes, you know, again, I always think when I call the attendings at UK and and I'm like, I could probably manage this patient here. She's probably fine. But then you think, but if she's not.
0: What if she's not? And that's that that was my and, and,
1: and I can get her out now. I can get her out now. And tomorrow the weather may not be good. If she crashes, the saddest part sometimes is like you would deliver them prematurely. Like, you know, I've delivered 27-week twins, you know, can't help but, you know, they're coming. Like, like I can deliver 26 seven week twins. That's not the hard part. That's the easy part. Like, you know, just do the section, get them out. Like, easier actually than 38-week twins because, you know, they're they're small, they're tiny, just gently go to my... But the thing is, is when they come out, right, we don't have a NICU. We don't have a neonatologist. We don't even have a neonatal nurse practitioner.
0: Are you doing resuscitations?
1: No, our nurses are NRP trained and they will do it and they will stabilize these babies. But again... Then the babies are gone and the mother is, you know, fresh C-section. She can't leave. Like, I have to watch her, you know, at least 24 hours before I can let her go. And then she can't see her babies. And then they're just depressed. You know, that's depressing. I'm stuck in this hospital. My children are in a NICU two to three hours away. I can't see them. I can't hold them. I can't check on them. I'm stuck here. It's heartbreaking.
0: So our kids are born premature in Chicago. Yeah. They actually wheeled my wife's bed. We had preemie twins. They wheeled her bed into the NICU to do like you know kangaroo care. Yep. The day of her C-section, you know, like incredible. We were we were lucky, we were apprentice.
1: My patients don't get to do that.
0: But yeah, I mean, the number of things that we just don't even consider because it's not in front of us because we don't experience it. Right. And again, these stories that uh, you know, from my experience but also your experience is so much broader and deeper than just the little tiny window I got into the into caring for folks in eastern Kentucky. I was like I just have I just have to bring you on to to talk about this, but it is incredible. But one more, one more question about like the lowest life expectancy in the country. I looked at the numbers recently. I've heard as many as six of the bottom 10 counties. It may be like more like four are in Eastern Kentucky, maybe six if you include West Virginia, but in terms of Appalachian. A lot of that is due to the opiate epidemic, It's due to young people dying. And you, know, you drive down there and you see pain clinics everywhere. How much of that is impacting your practice still today? I know we've, we've read a lot about this on the news and there's been more and more awareness of the opiate epidemic. But how big a problem is that right now still in Eastern Kentucky?
1: It's huge. It's huge. I don't know if it's ever going to end. It just feels some days like it's not. It's changed, I think, with MAT, you know, doing like Subutex and Suboxone and having clinics that are doing this therapy for the patients. It has helped tremendously. I have seen less hepatitis C Seems like I've seen less happen. Well,
0: thank God it's treatable now, right? I mean, that's the other thing is.
1: Yeah, right. It's treatable. It's treatable. And also, I think a lot of patients are getting care through, again, MAT therapy. And so that's helping them stay.
0: MAT stands for.
1: It's maintenance addiction therapy, I get. I don't. Okay. I'm trying to remember. I didn't say MAT, but it's like Subutex, Suboxone. Do you
0: have your ex license or whatever?
1: I don't. There is an OBGYN partner of mine who has her license and plans to start back doing it. I plan to get my license, actually. My former, so this is a whole other conversation, but the clinic that I was working at up until this past month would not allow us to do it. They did not want to get involved in that. Interesting. But my new clinic that I'm working at, my new employer, does have already physicians, psychiatrists that do prescribe it. They have a whole setup with therapists, and they're very well-connected with the treatment, and therefore, I would be able to get my license, prescribe it to my expecting mothers, and get them connected to resources for full-scope care and therapy. Thanks to University of Kentucky, with our wonderful Blue Angels program, we have telemedicine with the maternal-fetal medicine specialist. And Dr. Henson, who is amazing, has also started up a new program where we're going to get these mothers enrolled into like group therapy. And she's got this whole other, you know, program where they're.
0: It's incredible work.
1: Yeah. Is it a solution? Well, I mean, it's certainly in the right direction and it's already leaps and bounds, I think. Better than it used to be when I first came to Eastern Kentucky, there were days it just felt like every other patient was hepatitis C positive and their drug screens, as we would say, lit up the Christmas tree and, you know, positive for all this stuff. And yes, I still get those patients. I still get the patients dropping in with no prenatal care who, you know, is not actively seeking treatment or help. Yes, we do have babies who are what we call NAS babies, neonatal abstinence syndrome babies who are going through withdrawal it feels like the far majority of them are subutechs. These mothers are seeking treatment and help and therefore they're in the process of being able to take care of their children and keep custody of their children and be the parent that...
0: There are far more resources than there used to be and not enough.
1: Yes. Not enough. We need more. We need more resources. We need more help. And I was just thinking as you were talking earlier and you were you know saying all the nice things about me and, and I appreciate it so much. I thought, oh my God, like, if somebody hears this podcast, they're going to say, "Oh my God, I'm never going to want to practice in rural America." That sounds scary.
0: Well, so my next question was, like you said, I, I don't want to make it all doom and gloom, but no, no. One of my questions is what, are, like, what are the what are the biggest rewards, right? Because right. you wouldn't be there if it was all bad. And so, what are the things besides you know having family around? I, actually, you know what? I'm gonna take a step back because it's not just family. And one of the things that I've also tried to learn more about is what home means. In Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia, because, you know, like my parents aren't from Kentucky. They moved to Lexington. My brothers moved away, whatever. It's no big deal. But there's something about growing up in communities like those that are there in Eastern Kentucky where the culture is strong and the roots are deep. To get up and leave and go somewhere else is not so simple as just hopping in your car and loading up the truck and moving away. I mean, the cultural connections there and the familial connections there are extremely strong in in, in in many cases.
1: Well, I think what I try to remind myself on days that it's hard and days that I have been, you know, I was saying it's it's humbling. Can I handle this? And you, you have self-doubt those hard days and and I think, oh, I'm an idiot for doing this. And what I have come to realize is Someone needs to take care of these patients and not just need, more OBGYNs need to be here. We need more resources, right? And if I say, oh, I'm just going to go somewhere where it's just easier and, you know, what happens to these people? Like They're going to still be here. They're going to still have babies. They're still going to come into the ER. And there's um, two hospitals that are in, one is in the county just north of where I am. They used to do OBGYN. They had three OBGYN docs and over the years they've retired and one moved away. They haven't delivered a baby there in probably eight years. The poor ER doctor is calling me all the time. Got this patient here. She's in active labor. They brought her here. Why didn't they bring her there? They just go to the nearest hospital. There's so many hospitals around me that have no OBGYN care at all. It's literally a Band-Aid dispensing center. It's an ER. That's it. In a 20-bed, basically, sniff unit for elderly. And they keep coming in. You know, with obstetrical complaint, and they don't even have ultrasound tech to, like, scan these patients, to even get a heartbeat or anything. So anyway, point being, what is the reward? The reward is, if I was in Lexington, I would just be one of many OBGYNs taking care of patients. And I could be replaced by X, Y, and Z doctor, you know, whoever. It, it doesn't matter, right? Here, I have such a big impact. Because if it's not me, then who? You know, I'm one of four doctors who cover this hospital. That's it.
0: And, when you, and you say, I need to take care of these people, and the truth is, you don't, right? And that's why a lot of these communities are going away, and you're providing a service that these patients are so fortunate to have, because if you go... There may not be, like, if I leave zero concerns <laughs> that they will hire someone to replace they me. They
1: will hire another mixed guy, right?
0: They will hire another mixed person. But I don't, I don't think for a second that I'm irreplaceable. But I do believe that, and I've seen it. I've seen, you know, UK's managed practices and hazard. We have other, pra- other rural practices. It is harder to hire into those practices than it is in the practice here in Lexington. If not you, then the answer may be nobody. Right. And that's a scary, scary.
1: That's scary thought. That's terrifying. And I don't like that. And again, and it is personal for me. So again, it is very personal. So it's hard for me to give an answer that's not personal. Like it's hard for me to say because I do feel like these are my people. Like these are my, you know, they always make fun of me because like the nurses are like, are you kin to her? Are you kin to her? Did you go to school? Because everybody I mean, they're like related to or I went to high school. And
0: for those listening, are you kin to her? means, are you, are you related to her? There's a little, little bit of Eastern Kentucky translation. I, I, I moved back home and there were people from Eastern Kentucky who would say, hey, do you want to do this? And they would say, oh, I don't care to.
1: I don't care and to. And you're like,
0: does that mean you want to or you don't want to? Like, No, I don't care to. I'm like, I don't know what that means. That means I don't mind. Like, I don't care. But I don't care to sounds like I don't want to do it.
1: No, it's actually the opposite. They'd like to. I They'd don't be care. fine. Yeah, I, care to do I don't care That's to. I don't care to. Yeah, it's yeah. fine.
0: Yeah, I don't care to. That sounds great. I'm like, wait what?
1: We also like to put random prepositions on everything. Like whenever I was doing my general surgery rotation intern year and the general surgeon made so much fun of me because I said, that patient, she kept crying on me and crying on me. He's like, she cried on you. Yeah, on you. Yeah, well, no, on me. Well, that's what you said. Uh, I'm like,
0: a little little bit of a language barrier. No, for sure.
1: In reality, I love, I love home and I love the mountains and I love these people, my people. But I care about it. And will I be here forever and ever? I, I have no plans of leaving. But sometimes you think I can't do this anymore.
0: Hard days are hard down there is what I'm hearing.
1: And I'm sure you don't. Have, it's not like you have easy days in Lexington. I mean, you've got hard days there, too. It's just a different kind of hard.
0: I don't have days in Lexington like I had down in Hazard. I'll say that. And don't tell me that. The next thing to talk about is how to fix the problem. And I, not, not that we're going to come up with an answer today. But, you know, we th- you mentioned the Blue Angels program, which is an incredible yep. program that our MFMs here at UK, they have telemedicine, we have ultrasonographers going out of the community and we have our high-risk mm-hmm. OB docs talking to patients throughout their pregnancies, yeah. which is which is really important for the less acute care opportunities. But I think about you know technology and telemedicine being one of the big solutions and we're right. starting to look at that for gynecology because a lot of what I do, a lot of the visits, a lot of the conversations, a lot of the testing can be done remotely. I can get ultrasounds or MRIs at local hospitals and get the images up and I can have them come up for many cases just for the surgery or, you know, if they're getting a fibroid mm-hmm. embolization or something, just come up for the case. You, you can do an EMB, you can do a PAP. But, you know, the pipeline to making more doctors has to, I think, include people from a diverse background of communities because it means they'll be more likely to go back and take care of the people that they grew up with. I mean, look, we're both living in the towns we grew up in and working at hospitals, down the street from where we were born or where we were born. And I'm not even like, you know, my parents aren't even from here, so I don't have these deep Kentucky roots or anything. But I certainly was more likely to take UK more seriously. And I was able to call my chair and say, hey, remember me from med school and, you know, to get a job. And so by allowing more and more kids from these communities into med school, and that's where schools like Pikeville are in that part of the state that can put more and more kids through the medical school training, will increase the number of people we have back in those communities. And I think that has to happen. we got to have more rural residencies now. We're seeing some of those too, right? I read there's one in Wisconsin.
1: I would like to see some resident, and I don't know how you could do it, keep the numbers and the volume up, but it would be nice if they did a rural health month or a few weeks, you know, and just send me a UK resident down here and I'll be Joanne and Put them in the clinic and let them see what we deal with and put them on a few nights of call and let them deal with it. You know, I think it would give them appreciation for it because I'm sure they're rounding on our patients the next day. Like, this is that patient from Prestonsburg.
0: No, I I I think we all did that. And you're not trying to be a jerk about it.
1: No, No, no. What were they
0: thinking or why would they do these things? But I think a rural rotation would be extremely valuable, extremely eye opening.
1: I think it should be a requirement.
0: I rotated at a smaller hospital in Chicago, and we were the only doctors in house that attendings would come in for deliveries. And that felt like, oh man, we're so alone. But like there was ER docs, there was anesthesia there. we weren't really, you know, at all alone. But it was very, very different. Again, we can tell your stories and I can tell my stories. And when we see each other next time at a conference, we can, you know, ignore HIPAA and be more specific because there aren't other people listening. But until you go there and experience this, and this is how a lot of America lives, right? This is not one small window into a very unique community either. That's the other thing is we're talking about Appalachia, but a lot of the West, right? Alaska and huge swaths of this country are extremely rural. And, you know, we're talking about two hours from Lexington. There are places where you have to fly, right? You know, understanding rural communities, understanding what doctors in those communities have to do will allow us to help support more resources for those communities, whether it's resources in education and medical schools, to produce more kids, whether it's paying docs more to go out there or whatever it is. I mean, obviously it's a really complex problem and I know there's people working on it, but it is something that I really want people to understand a little bit better after hearing this because it's something that truly, I mean, I'm from Kentucky and I had no idea that this is how things were, were, how medicine was being practiced, how things were going just, you know, an hour or two away from where I live.
1: Yeah. It's so funny. I, I get all these constant like emails and texts and phone calls from all these, like, different companies. Hey, Dr. Branham, we're looking for some locums work, blah, blah, blah. And they're always trying to hire me to go work some locums job. And every time my response is, uh, no, I, it's the opposite. Can you can you send someone here? Okay, I'm tired. I don't want to work for you. Oh,
0: you God, I, that's so funny.
1: I'm like, no, Actually, can you, no. Can you
0: send one of them down here? No.
1: Like you can't pay me what it would be worth oh, to me. Oh, that's so I, funny. Like I think this is the other scary part, right? Graduate medical education for OBGYN, We have a certain piece of that pie. We're not getting any bigger piece of that pie. The numbers are what they are, and there's a national shortage everywhere, not just rural areas for our profession.
0: It's got to change at the national level, the federal level.
1: I can go to Louisville and get a job like yeah. today. Like, I could go to yeah. Ashland and get a job today. They are calling me all the time, wanting me to come there and do shifts. In, and this is in urban areas. How in the heck am I going to get somebody down here if they can't even get them up there where they have an airport down the road? And I've got an airport two to three hour drive. It's scary. And I don't know the solution. And I don't know if there's any... Feels like if you talk to ACOG about expansion for our, our profession, it's like, nope, can't happen. Sorry government's not giving us any more.
0: Well, it's a big problem. Yep. But I, and I think a big problem takes a big solution. It's not one right. thing, right? It's a series of things that we've, we've touched upon. The areas that have the least resources are the ones that likely need the most resources. And we need to really think about how we direct those resources. And I really give a lot of credit to, you mentioned Dr. John O'Brien and Dr. Wendy Hanson, who are our, our MFM, two of our MFMs here at UK, who have really worked incredibly hard to try and serve the communities outside of Lexington, especially in Eastern Kentucky, and think creatively and think strategically and how to care for patients yeah. outside of that community. And it's, it's been very inspirational to see that too, and that relationship and how the bigger health centers work with the smaller hospitals. And we're not in the same hospital network, right? No. You, you, we could be seen as competitors, but no. <laughs> putting patients first, putting our physician colleagues first, and working to try to build better relationships, better programs to... Try and minimize the complications, try to improve the care. And that's part of the, you know, the fiber program we've talked about on the show and, and, and that, that we've talked about, you, know, you and I, as much as, I, as you can do ahead of time, they could just come up right for the UFE if we had all the information. So how do we minimize yeah. the travel? How do we make it more of a one-stop shop? Because it's tough out there and it's tougher out there for some of these folks in rural and real rural communities. And I just wanted to make sure people had an opportunity to hear from you, to hear from Someone who's out there doing it, who's doing incredibly important work, who's doing incredibly difficult work in hopes that more people can hear about this. And we can have people try to think about creative solutions or can put some pressure on those national organizations that can have an impact because the problem's not getting better, right? We're we're, we're, we're chatting numbers and and it looks worse today than it did. It's bleak. Yeah.
1: It's so funny. I was sitting here thinking, oh, we could talk for hours about all the multifaceted. It's a very complex issue and just not OBGYN, but medicine in general. Like
0: medicine. Medicine. Right.
1: People, taking care of people.
0: It is. But you know, I think hearing your story, hearing your experience, hearing, you know, what you do and the challenges that you face, even just a tiny window into what you do, I think is something that many of us never get a chance to experience. But I think we can all agree what you do is essential essential healthcare for this community, for this country, for your patients. I just, I'm very grateful for all that you do. I'm very grateful that you were able to join us today on Back Table OBGYN. And you were one of the first people I thought of when, you know, the show doesn't even come out till later this week, but uh, you know, you were one of the first people I thought of that I thought, you know what, I think this is an important story to tell. And so thank you. I know you're busy, as we talked about, I know your time's very valuable, but I'm very grateful that you were able to come on and I wish you all the best and I look forward to seeing you again at a meeting sometime soon or next time you're in Lexington, give me a call and we can hang out. We'll do. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Jessica Branham. I hope to have you back at sometime soon.
1: In your time.